Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. you have your text open before you to Galatians chapter 5. Um, one of the temptations in a passage such as we're looking at today is to view it in isolation. Uh, it's uh, almost a grocery list of things not to do. Um, our temptation is to think that uh, all Paul is doing is uh, sort of um, covering the bases having spent four chapters in some rather developed uh, theology and the presentation of the authentic gospel. Uh, you know, we have this idea, well, first there was teaching, and, and now there's going to be the pragmatic section. And what I suggested last week and what I want to, to emphasize this morning is that this is a part still of the uh, exposition, the display of the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul started out in the first couple of chapters. He said, look, the way you experience Christ is by grace. He said, that's what happened to me. It wasn't religion. It wasn't the law. Uh, it was rather that Christ encountered me on the road to Damascus and he turned my life around. And that's where salvation comes. And so Paul concludes that personal testimony. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, that's what happens when you encounter the gospel. The old man dies. There's a new birth, a new creation. You live a life that you never lived before. In fact, you're not even living as Christ living in you. And so that was the, the opening uh, display of the, uh, of the authentic gospel. And then Paul in chapters 3 and 4 uh, addressed head-on the whole uh, question that had been raised by the false teachers in Galatia. They had come in and said, look, you can't be a child of God unless you're a child of Abraham first of all. I mean, this makes a certain amount of sense. God worked through Abraham. We speak of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And, and, uh, and so the idea of being connected to the grand sweep of what God had been doing throughout biblical history uh, had some appeal to it. And so they came in and they said, in order to be a child of God, really, you must be a child of Abraham. That means you must adhere to the law. You must adhere to the traditions of sacrifice and diet regulation and circumcision and temple observance. And these are all the things that you need to do because that's what God commanded us in the Old Testament. And then when you're a child of Abraham, when you've embraced the tradition of Israel, then you can truly be a child of God. And you remember how in chapters 3 and 4, Paul said, well, in point of fact, Abraham never was saved by his works. He was never saved by the law. That was given later after Abraham. Uh, in fact, Abraham was, was saved by the promise of God. And Abraham simply believed God, had faith in God that God would uh, fulfill his promise. And Abraham, believing in God, found that to be counted to him as righteousness. In other words, Abraham's relationship to God was sealed by his faith. It was always by grace, grace all along the way. And we saw how he developed the theme of being set free from the law, that the law was a school teacher to bring us to Christ, to show us our sin. Uh, but in point of fact, we live in bondage and we live in, in slavery as long as we are trying to be saved, have a relationship with God, have a 
fulfilling life that, that fulfills our, our purpose for being here, that we are saved by the law, that, that, that is a, a, a bondage that we are in. On the other hand, Paul says, there is freedom from the law in Christ. He drew that out through the, the analogy of Hagar and Sarah. And uh, then he came down and set the, uh, the parallel uh, sort of um, uh, 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 lining out of this dynamic. You not only have uh, freedom and slavery, you not only have law and grace, you have spirit and flesh. You have the flesh that dominates the old man, the flesh that dominates the person apart from Christ, and then you have the spirit. Uh, just to remind you, Paul was not saying that you can live by the flesh... And then if you want to really try hard, you can live by the Spirit. He was not saying that you have a flesh side and a spirit side, and the flesh side results in all these sort of um, uh, bad things, and that if you really try hard, you can live by the spirit side instead. What Paul means is this. We are born with a sin nature. We are born, and in, in, in our whole inclination is to rebel against God, to rebel against His authority, to reject His righteousness, to reject His sovereignty over us. And so uh, that's how we come into the world. That's how we live. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit of God that enables us to be set free from the desires and the works of the flesh. That's what he means when he says flesh and spirit. He's saying you can live by your flesh, your own strength and understanding, or you can live by the Holy Spirit of God within you. The Holy Spirit given to every believer when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit taking up residence within you. And then the process of living as a Christian is one of walking in the Spirit by the power, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit. So we we've, we've sort of have that sweep coming through of law versus grace, and then slavery versus freedom, then flesh versus the Spirit. And Paul is still talking about that dynamic that's going on here. Uh, let me illustrate that for you. Look at verse um, uh, 18, and then we'll get rolling into 19. That's where we want to be. It says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So he's still dealing with this thing. He's still saying, you know, where does religion come in? Where does the Old Testament law come in? He says, well, um, the law was given. It suppresses the sin inclination of the flesh. God gave the law so that we would see what righteousness looks like and so that natural tendencies that we have in the flesh can be uh, suppressed and kept in check to lead us to the Savior who saves us from our sins, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he says, not by the law, but you're walking to walk by spirit. And that's why in verse 19 he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Now before we get to that, I want to sort of come in the back door, if you will, to this passage of uh, Scripture First of all, uh, you are aware that we're getting ready for the uh, fruit of the Spirit. Some of you know this. If, if not, just read a few verses beyond. You see the list of the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit does in our lives. Now, um, let me say, I'm really looking forward to our time in the verses about the fruit of the Spirit. I'm really looking forward to that. The verses we're looking at this morning are a little bit harder. They're not as much fun, folks. Um, it, 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 it's sort of that temptation to become a finger-wagging, uh, hellfire and brimstone uh, preacher. Um, now, uh, I want you to know that there is something called hellfire and brimstone, and, and you, you are headed towards it without Christ. And, you know, so I'm not putting that down. But it's just not as comfortable to us. You ever go back and look at your um, uh, yearbook picture, high school yearbook picture? 
college, I, well, I didn't have a college yearbook, but the high school yearbook picture. It's not pretty. It's not pretty. I, I can just, you know, here, here's why it's not pretty. One word, polyester. <laughs> Enough said? You know, you look back in there, and boy, you are cool. I mean, those bell bottoms were rocking. <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and the hair thing, you know, whether it's just flowing out and coiffured and man, it, you know, it, 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 you know it, back when, it, when I was coming through in the 60s, everything had to be natural. You know, it was all natural. We weren't going to do all this stuff. So, you know, everything was natural. It took you an hour to get looking hair. <laughs> but you go back and you look at that, you know, those pictures in the past, and uh, they're not pretty. You know, they're interesting. Um, you, you really don't want your kids to see them. You know, why is it that when you bring your, your engaged, uh, intended home to meet the parents, uh, you know, your mom always wants to bring out the baby picture, you know, and she doesn't bring out the cute on the Gerber jar picture. She brings out the one you thought you had burned, right? She pulls out and, oh, look at me cute. Yeah, right. You know, so anyway, uh, so you, you look at the past and, and you kind of like want to move on from that. You know it's there, but you kind of like to want to move on. Um, that's the way I look at these works of the flesh. I'd like to move on. I would really like to move on. The problem is the flesh doesn't move on. You know, and they're, they're still real. They're still going on. So um, uh, it's not as happy to preach about these things uh, because there's, there's such conviction in it. Uh, so that's, that's the first thing to say. Uh, the second thing to say about, uh, as we're coming in the back door of this, is uh, in, at the end of verse 23, look at the very last part of 23. So he, he lists the, uh, the works of the flesh. He says, you know, the, these things are going on. You can't inherit the kingdom of God with the works of the flesh. Then he lists the fruit of the Spirit. You know, this, this is the things that the Spirit does. And at the end of 23, he says, now, when you think about the gifts of the, the, the fruit of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. See, when you look at what the flesh wants to do, you need law to rein it in. You look at the sin, you need a law, either from society, from Congress, or at least just, just the, 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 the normal restraint upon human license. You need a law to rein in the deeds and the works of the flesh. You need someone to say, don't do that. But when you come to the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law. No. There's no law that says, you know that patience thing? You got too much of it. You know, try to back off that patience thing. Yeah. The love that's going on in your life, you know, try not to be so loving. Try to inject a little bit of anger and, you know, be upset at people a little bit more, you know. The gentleness and the self-control, while wow, you're way too self-controlled, you know, let it go, you know. There's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. You don't need to dampen and suppress the fruit of the Spirit, though deeds and works of the flesh must be suppressed. That's the work of the law. So that's, that's why we're, we're looking at this. We're still thinking about, does religion have a role? Well, well, the law is given by God, suppresses the sin, but it doesn't forgive it and doesn't change it. And that's what we're looking at here. So uh, with that in mind, then we look at verses 19 through uh, 21. Now, the back door of these three verses is, is verse 21. And look at the very last part of verse 21. It says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. See, evidently, there's something called the kingdom of God. Evidently, God is king. 
God is the one who rules. God is the one who is worthy of praise and adoration. This is why you and I have been created. We are created for the glory of God. We are created so that in our lives, God would be honored and exalted. We are created so that when anyone views our lives, they just bypass us and they give praise to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're created. So God is the King. I hate to tell you this. You're not the king. You're not in charge. You cannot bring the universe into being by speaking a word. You cannot set the course of the planets. You are not the king. A philosophy is not the king. An idea is not the king. A movement is not the king. A nation is not the king. God alone is the king. And the whole point of life is to honor and to glorify the king. So when you see kingdom of God, think God is king. He is worthy of all praise and adoration. God is sovereign. He does not share his glory with another. He does not share his authority with another. He does not need advice from another. He does not need to be corrected by another. He does not need to be brought into a perfection of understanding by another. God is absolutely sovereign. When you see this word, kingdom of God, it means that God alone rules and reigns over us. There's no one else who has a right to participate in that. And God is Lord. He owns it all. Now, I love that we, we sang this. Did we sing second service? Uh, Jesus is Lord of all. Oh, okay, okay. We sang the first service, sang the second. Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is Lord of all. What a great hymn to sing right before we get stingy. What a great hymn to sing right before we start rationalizing that Jesus is Lord of all, but I'm going to keep something back. You know, right before the offering. He is Lord He's sovereign, he's king, he's absolutely in charge. Now, it should be obvious that life in the kingdom of God is not about the old life made better. The kingdom of God is not about who you are in the flesh, just ratcheted up a little bit so you're a little bit better than the next guy. It, it, it's not about, uh, oh, I'm, I'm basically okay and I just need to tweak the edges and then I'm fine for the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not about the old life made better. It's about new life by the new birth in Jesus Christ. You see, So when he says, you don't inherit the kingdom of God, we're talking about God's sovereign rule over us, transforming us, taking us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, out of death into life. This is the kingdom of God. And so Paul says, if you're, if you're living and dominated by and, and just latched on to the deeds of the flesh, you do not enter the kingdom of God. You shall not either enter. We are called to put that old self aside. Now this lies at the very heart of what Paul had been talking about, being a child of God as opposed to child of Abraham. This is the inheritance that is ours. Isn't that what he says? Inherit the kingdom of God. That, that ties into the whole uh, Abraham thing in that regard. So now, and now I hope you, you have just sort of a sense of why we're going to talk about these works of the flesh. We're finally getting there. We're going to talk about the works of the flesh, but we're doing that as a way to understand where it is we were 
when Jesus saved us and what it is we are coming out of in order to walk into the kingdom of God and to walk in the Spirit. So that, that's the thing. So, now, verse, 20, uh, verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Some have translated that the works of the flesh are public. Not really. You can cover, cover them up, most of them. You can hide behind different things, cover it up. So a lot of times, these works of the flesh are private. In fact, um, some of us are really uncomfortable right now because... You know, on that list, we see a couple of the A number one problems in our lives. But they're evident. The works of the flesh are evident, and here's what some of them are. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. That's probably where our minds went first of all. The, the word for sexual uh, immorality there was originally the word for prostitution. It was the idea that someone would sell the sacred and the God-ordained nature of sexual relations for money and that someone else would buy it for money. I mean, let's be clear about this. God is the one who created sex. He created the man and the woman, male and female. He create, created he them. And in, in his own image, he created the man and the woman. And what's the very first thing he told them to do? I mean, think back to your memorization of the book of Genesis. And the very first thing, he created the man, he created the woman, and the first thing he told them to do was be fruitful and multiply. Like they needed to be told. But, you know, but, <laughs> but this is the God-ordained and God-defined place of the sexual relationship in the world. It's defined uh, in the light of the glory of God and the image of God, a man and a woman coming together in order to bring children into the world. Now, there's a lot more that goes on in the sexual relationship than just that, but the, 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 um, the, the satisfaction and the fulfillment, the coming together as one between a man and a woman is designed to bring dad and mom together so that as one flesh they take care of the children. You know, all the ancillary things that have to do with the sexual relationship, which are kind of good, are designed to bring mom and dad together and keep them together to take care of the children. That's God's design. Now, I understand that in history and, and, and in, the, in a fallen world, sometimes there, there are widows, there are widowers, sometimes mom and dad get sick. Uh, we, we understand that it doesn't always work out that way in a fallen world, but this is the aiming point. This is what God designs for the sexual relationship. Now, we live in a world that has said, basically, let's throw all that out the window. Let's turn it upside down so it's no longer about the glory of God and the care of children and the bringing together of mom and dad so that together they can take care of the children. We turn that upside down and say, no, the sexual relationship is all about being happy, being stimulated, having a sense of whatever. That's a technical term. <laughs> oh, then, and maybe children. And then maybe marriage. If we get around to it. I mean, the whole redefinition of marriage in our society today takes place because, first of all, there was a redefinition of what the sexual relationship is all about. And so this sexual immorality has, has come upon us. The, the, the word originally had to do with prostitution, uh, and then it came to, be, um, uh, to speak of any general uh, sexual expression outside of the definite, definition and the bounds of marriage. 
See, one of the problems we have in this relationship or in this discussion is that it's very hard to talk about sex without, um, I'm going to put it politely, people being uncomfortable, children being confused. I mean, there's some teenagers in here and they're saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, the adults get the sex lecture too? I thought that stopped after you got married. <laughs> it's sort of like pornography. Very hard to, 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 to talk about how bad pornography is. Why? Because you can't hold up examples of it. It's so um, offensive. You know, and the purveyors of pornography can get on the, on the TV programs talking about, well, we're talking about First Amendment rights and freedom of speech. And all we are talking, we're talking about the beauty of the human body. It's a beautiful thing. And you're not allowed to say, wait, let's get your magazine out here. Here, look, folks, here's what it is. You can't do that. One, because TV won't allow it. And sensible people won't allow it. And half the people looking at the example will forget that it's an example and they're, you know, and they're off to the races anyway. But let's understand that the work of the flesh is sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. And the senses have got to be fed. You know, movie's not a movie anymore unless it's loud. It's not enough to hear music anymore. You've got you to feel it. You've got to have these subwoofers that only a, a bull elephant can hear, you know, just vibrating, you know, and so that the, uh, you know, you ever have a heart attack, just look, listen to some of this rock music and it'll get the heart started because, you know, you don't need, all right. Now, the thing is, if you were talking to a first century Roman or Greek and, uh, you said, well, you know, the, the work of the flesh is, is sexual immorality. They'd look like, like you, at you like you had grown antlers or something. Now, what are you talking about? The whole opinion in the first century, in the days of the New Testament, was there's nothing wrong with that. You have wives to bear children, but, uh, and, and this, this is almost an exact quote, and you have women and young boys for your pleasure. That was the idea. And so if you, you, if you went to people in the first century, you said, you know, there's, there's something called sexual immorality. They said, what are you talking about? And here's the argument they would give you. No, uh, it's all about being natural. God created us this way, you know, to, to have this pleasure. I'm not just talking about homosexuality. You know, the heterosexuals say, we were created with these animal instincts. They must be satisfied. They must be fed. They must be fulfilled. And it's only normal. It's only natural. Why look at the animal kingdom? Nowhere else do you find these kinds of artificial restraints placed upon the sexual relationship. And, and you know, and, 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 and all of uh, what you're talking about here, Paul, is just sort of narrow-minded. You're trying to cram your, your, your Jewish morality down our throats. This is an awful thing to do. That's what they would have said in first century Rome. By the way, it's also what they said on the 1960s college campuses. I was there. Anybody else remember this? Yes, we remember this. Yeah. The whole thing was, you know, why, why confine sex to marriage? We're liberated from that now. After all, we can separate it from children, you know, and all this other thing. There's nothing new under the sun. The sexual morality and immorality is of the same piece. It's a work of the flesh. It's where we go with our lives without Christ. That's where we are headed. So Paul says the works of the flesh, they're evident. There's sexual immorality, this impulse that leads us to sin. 
The world bombards us with sexual temptation and, and mind games, and it gets to the point where it's almost impossible to feel like you're having any, any kind of victory in, in this area of life so often. And it starts to bother you when Paul says, and you know, people who do such things, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. And all of us are saying, well, I'm glad that's not me. I'm glad that's the other fellow. But let me tell you what the gospel also is. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his house to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, who was a sinner. Let me tell you what that meant. It meant she was a woman of ill repute. She was that woman. She was the woman that everybody talked about. Everybody knew she was a sinner, and nobody could figure out how she kept doing enough business to stay in business. But she did. And she comes to the table. She learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment, standing behind him at his feet, Weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet. And it, have you worshipped Jesus lately? Have you worshipped Jesus lately? Have you just fallen at his feet and wept for the pure joy of being in his presence? We go back to this. She stood at his feet with tears and wiped them with the, the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. She is a sinner the way you and I are. Only Jesus knew. Praise God, Jesus, Jesus knew. He knew who she was. He knew what she had done. He knew where she had been. He knew what was in her heart. He knew how broken she was. He knew that she had made a total mess of her life. He knew that she was a woman that polite people would never consider allowing into the homes. He knew that she was a kind of woman that no self-respecting Jewish man would touch or allow her to touch him. Praise God, Jesus knew who she was. And when the Pharisee stood up and said, if only you'd known you wouldn't have had anything to do with her. Turning toward the woman, he said to the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, do you see this woman? Simon didn't. Jesus did. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Are forgiven. He didn't say her sins, which are many, are mostly forgiven, but there's some things I just can't handle. He didn't say her sins, which are many, have been forgiven in the most part, but you know, there's a couple of there that I need to see her work off, do some penance. He said, Simon, you see this woman, her sins, she's got a lot of them. I'm not going to argue the point. She's got a lot of sins, but they are all forgiven. 
Every last one forgiven. And you know something, Simon? She loves me a lot. Because when you've been forgiven a lot, you love a lot. And Simon, in your religious hypocrisy, you love a little because you don't know how much you need to be forgiven. That's authentic gospel. You know? So the, the deeds, the works of the flesh, they're evidence, sexual immorality and, and impurity and sensuality, and they're all covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, every last one of them. So um, let's move on quickly. Verse 20. Also the works of the flesh are idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry is what you would expect. It's putting a created thing in the place where the creator ought to be. It's worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Idolatry is making something the focal point of your life other than the God who created you. That's what idolatry really is all about. And the thing is, if you had gone to people in the first century and you had told them that idolatry was a work of the flesh, they would have said, so? It's fine with us. We've got a lot of gods. I mean, that's the whole purpose. Keep the gods happy. They'll make it rain. Go to the temple. Sacrifice to the god. They'll, they'll make your business prosper. That was the whole idea was to have a lot of gods. So they said, you know, you've got idols. Yeah, we've got idols. Proud of it. We live in a world filled with idols. We live in a world in which the temptation is always to put some created thing in the place of the Creator God, to, to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And then he says sorcery. Now, now sorcery is an interesting word. Uh, the, um, the Greek for it is pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy from it. It was a word that originally meant uh, a, a potion, and the idea was you, you went to the pharmacy, imagine that, and you got a potion, and the potion would make you feel better. It was medicine, so it was a good thing. But then it, it got to the point there, well, if you had a problem with your neighbor, you went to the pharmacist, and you said, look, I got a, a problem with my neighbor. He knocked on my fence. He won't fix it. Uh, can you help me get rid of my neighbor? And the pharmacist would say, well, sure, for $9.95, as seen on TV, we've got this little potion here. Slip it into his drink, and you won't have to worry about your neighbor anymore came to mean poison and then it came to mean any kind of potion that was used as a way to try and manipulate your life around you one of the most popular potions of that day was the one that if you were pregnant and you didn't want to be pregnant you went to the pharmacist and you got a potion so that you wouldn't be pregnant anymore imagine that a society that thought abortion should be on demand totally separated from God's design for the family. It's hard to believe that, that the, uh, uh, the Romans wound up with a society where abortion was rampant and the abandonment of children was, was an everyday experience. I mean, there, there were people who made their living going up and down the highways collecting little babies who'd been abandoned because they weren't wanted. They weren't the right gender. They came along at the right moment. They interrupted somebody's career. They stopped someone from, from being economically advanced. They were going to be a strain on the family. For whatever reason, we weren't ready for this baby. It's just we carried it full term. Then we sort of aborted it out of the family, abandoned this child beside the road, and people would go collect the children, raise them, 
them, feed them, raise them, and then sell them into slavery. And there were enough children on the road for a lot of people to make a living doing that. Imagine a society that abandoned its children like that. It's hard to believe. But Paul says the work of the flesh is, is uh, this sorcery, this trying to have better living through chemistry uh, kind of thing. And, you know, and we haven't even started to talk about the addiction to drugs. You know, why is it that our society, you know, just our, our American culture, we spent generations trying to rid us of this mentality that getting an artificial high, a drug-induced high, was somehow a good thing that made you creative and, and made you more uh, interesting and made life better. And finally we figured out, well, that's going nowhere. And so laws were passed against it. And what happens is the generation goes along, they don't have the laws, they say, well, what's the problem? And then they pass law and say, hey, this is a wonderful thing. In another generation, they're going to try to stamp it out again because it will destroy us. So uh, the work of the flesh is sorcery as well. Uh, I'll tell you what the gospel does. There was an account in the book of Acts. Okay, there was an account in the book of Acts. Fortunately, I didn't turn my clock back. <laughs> and it's already 1 o'clock, so you missed the restaurants anyway. So. Yeah, and, and kick off, forget kick off. So as far as I know, you're glad to be here. Amen. 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 But anyway, in, in the town of Ephesus, Paul had come in and he had driven out demons uh, in the name of Jesus. And some other folks came in and they said, you know, that, that's a pretty neat trick. We, we, we should try that too. And so they tried to cast out demons as well. And the demons said, you know, we've we, we got a pretty good notion who Jesus is and we know who Paul is. We don't know who you are. And the demons jumped out and they started to beat up these, these false uh, 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 witnesses. And, and uh, if, if you know this story, you'll know what I mean when I say they got the pants beat off of them. And so they, they just ran out. And when the church saw that, Acts 19.18 says uh, that there were many believers who then as a result came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. By the way, what this means is now, Paul had a preaching ministry, a teaching ministry. I mean, those folks, when they heard the Word of God read to them, it was somebody reading the original manuscripts. I mean, that's how close they were to it. And yet, even though they had heard this from Paul and see power in the works of the Holy Spirit, yet they hung on to their old way of life and they hung on to their magic books and their incantations and their potions and, and, and those kinds of things. And th so when they saw the power of the Holy Spirit, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver because believers seeing the power of the Holy Spirit decided, I would rather have allegiance to Christ than 50,000 pieces of silver worth of trash and sin. Sort of a good example. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's what the gospel will do. It'll set you free from these kinds of things. All right, let me um, just put, put these in front of you very quickly. He moves now, by the way, from um, uh, talking about the, 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 uh, the, the sexual sins and then sort of the religious sins, idolatry and sorcery, and now he uh, moves into relational sins, the sins that we inflict on one another. I think most of them are, are self-explanatory, so we can run through them. It says, uh, not only is there idolatry and sorcery, there's enmity, strife. By the way, if, if you want to translate that into your life, it's, it's scorekeeping, trying to get even, 
talking about some people as though they deserve your attention and other people you can't be bothered with, writing people off. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Fits of anger comes from, it's the Greek word thumos. It's a word taken from when a guy was driving a chariot and somebody cut in front of him. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, envy, drunkenness, orgies, frat parties, things like that. See, in all this, in all this, the Roman and Greek culture would have said, what's wrong with that? That's just the way we are. That's life. You know, you've got to expect this kind of thing. So it reminds me of when Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers are the Gentiles. So look at the folks who do not know God. Look at the Gentiles. They're rulers. Lord it over them. They like to have authority. They like to be on top. They like to just impress people with their power. The Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Talk about the American dream. That's where we all want to be, right? Verse 43 of Mark chapter 10 should be emblazoned across every church door as we come in. It shall not be so among you. It doesn't matter if the whole world is chasing after the deeds and the works of the flesh. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay. Um, much more that could be said about that, but uh, it, let's just wind it down this way. We struggle with these things. You know, the, the catalog of the works of the flesh, uh, did anybody score a hundred on that? Not, not a one of them is bothering you? He left out lying, but I'll write it in. <laughs> I mean, we struggle with these things. The difference is we struggle with these things. We don't accept it as normal and natural. It is something to be lauded and applauded. We struggle with these things. And you know, John, when he wrote to, to his people, he said, look, if we say we have not sinned, we lie. If we say we have not sinned, we lie and the truth is not in us. So you might as well get real. As long as, as, as you're in this body in a fallen world, we're going to struggle with these things. But he, John also said to his people, he said, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, let's put that in Galatians language. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to give us the kingdom. And we inherit the kingdom by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
that washes away every sin. John went on to say, look, I'm writing these things so you will not sin. But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. That means he is the one who took the wrath of God that we deserve. Our sins deserve the judgment and wrath of God. Jesus took that upon himself in our place. That's what it means when it says he's our propitiation. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Beloved, there's hope in Jesus Christ. And there's victory in Jesus Christ. And okay, we're, we're, we're walking and, and we're, we're, we're dominated by or, 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 or tempted by and, and assaulted by the deeds of the flesh. But greater still is the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're going to start talking about the fruit of the Spirit uh, next week. Um, but uh, those uh, who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and its passions. And we're set free by the blood of Christ. Amen. That, that is authentic gospel. That's the problem. That's the answer. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that in these next few moments, your Holy Spirit would come upon us in a real and powerful way. Father, for that life that does not know Jesus, there would be conviction, confession, and conversion that your Holy Spirit would work that miracle this morning. But Father, there are brothers and sisters here who struggle with the flesh, struggle with the brokenness that it causes. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would rekindle the hope that we have in Jesus and give again the confidence in your grace and not our strength in your wisdom and not our thinking, in your power alone. To let your Holy Spirit come and bring that healing work. And Father, I ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Beautiful Lord, wonderful Savior, I know for sure. 